Okay, we have been looking at the blessings of the new covenant. We have seen in our previous studies that the vast majority of what we know about the new covenant is found in the Old Testament, notably in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And we have said that the prophets, Jeremiah, uh, pardon me, Isaiah to Malachi, that last section in your Old Testament, um, all those prophets existed during the very last part of Israel's existence before she went into captivity, uh, while they were in captivity, and then after they came out of captivity up to the point of the return to the land. And then, of course, there's 400 years of silence where there are no prophets, and then the book of Matthew begins. And so what we find is though the new covenant is a new covenant um, in terms of its institution, it wasn't instituted until the Last Supper when Jesus said, you know, regarding the cup and the wine, he says, this is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the remission of the sins of many. And of course, that covenant was ratified by the shedding of his blood on the cross and sealed to us by his resurrection. And uh, all the blessings now are being poured out upon us, and we saw those beginning on the day of Pentecost, uh, which we'll be talking about today. Uh, in any event, um, even though the new covenant is new in terms of uh, being radically different from the old covenant, uh, there's nothing new about it in that for uh, you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years prior to its institution, all of its terms have been fully laid out. And so when Jesus institutes the new covenant, he doesn't need to explain anything uh, because it's all been explained for centuries. The Jews knew about this covenant. They knew it was coming. They knew its terms, and they were simply waiting on the Messiah to bring it and to institute it. So we read very little about the new covenant in the New Testament. Um, we see it declared. We see it um, stated. Uh, but we don't see it explained much because it's already been explained. So what we're doing is we're looking at nine features of the new covenant. And last time we looked at the first three that were revealed to us in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And we're going to continue on and look at the subsequent six as time permits. So last time we talked about the fact that the first blessing of the new covenant is that God was going to be at peace with his people. And so we looked at Isaiah chapter 54 and verses 9 and 10. And in this passage, God had sent his people into captivity. Uh, he was angry with them because they had broken his covenant, namely the old covenant. Um, and, uh, and he says, uh, I've withdrawn from you. I've hidden myself from you. I'm angry at you. And he says, but the day is coming when I will not hide myself from you ever again. I will not be angry with you ever again. I will not withdraw my presence from you ever again. Because I'm going to make with you a new covenant, namely the covenant of peace. For he says... In a little wrath, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on you, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. So he's going to redeem these people, and he's going to have mercy on them in the future. And then he describes the nature of that mercy, for this is as the waters of Noah unto me, for as I have sworn 
that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. Here it is. So I have sworn I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. For the mountain shall depart, and the hills shall be removed. But my kindness shall not depart from thee. Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. So this new covenant will never be removed. And one of the blessings of the new covenant is that as a result of its institution and its operation in the hearts of the people of God, God will never reject his people or be angry with them ever again. And so that's an amazing thing to think that because we're in the new covenant, all God has towards us is favor. He never has anger towards us. And so... Um, it's a covenant of peace. God is at peace with us. He's never going to go to war with his own people. Um, and uh, all his acts towards us are acts of love and acts of peace. Uh, God says, I know the thoughts I have toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil. Uh, to bring you out to that end that I promised you, the end that uh, uh, you may expect. So we saw last time then that God would be at peace with his people. Uh, and not be angry or rebuke them, but give them only kindness and peace and mercy. Now, of course, his people are those who turn from transgression to hear and come to Christ um, and uh, those alone. Now, so this is not a promise to Jews in general. It's a promise to those who turn from their sins and their iniquities um, and who um, embrace Christ as Savior. And so those who incline their ear, those who come to him, those who hear and respond to the gospel, their souls live and God makes an everlasting covenant with them, even the sure mercies of David. And of course, the sure mercies of David are Jesus Christ, who is the son of David and the son of God, uh, who comes to build um, the temple of God, namely the church. Secondly, um, we saw that God would forgive pardon me, that God would remember our sins and iniquities no more. And we saw that in Jeremiah 31, 34, and also in um, Hebrews chapter 8, verses uh, 10 to 12. There's verse 12, uh, I will be merciful unto their unrighteousnesses, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. So, when you get to heaven, okay, and you stand before God on the day of judgment, he's not going to drag out all of your sins, spread them all out in front of you, and say, what about this, and what about this, and what about that? And, and shame you over them, because you have no sins adhering to you. When you appear before God on the day of judgments, where are all your sins? They were all placed on Christ, and they were resolved there. And, and what, what is on your account? All of his obediences are placed to your account. So when you read, for example, in Matthew chapter 25, about the day of judgment, um, <clears throat> when, when, when Christ separates the sheep from the goats... What does he say to the sheep? You did this, you did that, you did this other thing. Uh, enter into the joy of your Lord. You never see him calling them to account for their sins. Uh, he doesn't mention their sins. All he mentions is their righteous deeds. And the same way with the wicked, he says, you didn't do this and you didn't do that and you didn't do the other thing, you know, depart into hell. He never mentions anything good that they did because, of course, even the plowing of the wicked is sin. And so the wicked do no good, and the righteous have done no evil. Because all the evil that they did do was transferred to Christ. All his righteousnesses were transferred to them. And so God looks upon their works as being righteous works because they were done in and through the blood and mediation of Christ. 
and thus cleansed from all sin. And um, so what we see on the day of judgment is that really our sins and iniquities, he does not remember. They are cast as far away from him as the east is from the west. He says he cast them behind his back. He says he buries them in the depths of the sea. He uses the most uh, powerful language to describe the fact that they will never be brought up to us again. And so a wonderful blessing of the new covenant is that our sins truly are under the blood of Christ. They're truly covered. And um, then the third um, blessing that we looked at last time is that as a result of the saving work of Christ, um, that we would possess humility and contrition for our sins. And we looked at Ezekiel chapter 16. And the point is, is a lot of people say, well, if I know that on the day of judgment, God's not going to bring up any of my sins to me because they're all under the blood. Therefore, I can sin all I want and I can get away scot-free. Okay. Well, two things. One, in this life, God will chastise us for our sins if we are unrepentant of them. Right. Okay. Um, in this life, we will reap what we sow. And, um, and in many respects, um, God will deal with us according to our willful, knowing, defiant, unrepentant, ongoing sins. Now, it's one thing if you commit a sin and you go, oh, man, and you, you, you confess your sin and you ask God for forgiveness. There's forgiveness. There's restoration. And uh, you go on. Chastisement is reserved for those who go on in willful, knowing, defiant unrepentant sin and they don't intend to repent of it those are the ones and, and so everybody thinks well every time something bad happens to me god's chastising me look that's the last tool in god's toolbox and he uses it like after a long time <laughs> and he's he's, he's d done all the other things and it's like with your kids right if they mess up and you go stop that and they stop it you don't get out the stick and paddle them do you okay and and you know you work with them and you train them and it's only when they go no then you get out the stick and let them have it, right? Okay? And so um, that's the way with God. He's very patient with his people. And, um, but the point is, is that people say, okay, God is at peace with me. God's not going to be angry with me. My sins and iniquities are going to remember no more, so I can send up a storm and, and basically get away with it. Well, Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 60 to 63 is the antidote to that. Because what does God do? He puts a new spirit in our hearts, right? And part of that spirit is shame and grief for the sins that we have committed. And so in Ezekiel 16, verse 60, he says, Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with thee, that's the new covenant, in the days of thy youth, and I, and I will establish unto thee an everlasting covenant. There it is. There's the new covenant. And then thou shalt remember thy ways and be ashamed. When thou shalt receive thy sisters, thine elder and thy younger, and I will give them unto thee for daughters, but not by thy covenant. And I will establish my covenant with thee, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord, that thou mayest remember and be confounded, and never open thy mouth any more, because of thy shame, when I am pacified towards thee for all that thou hast done, saith the Lord. That's a complicated passage. I need to preach a sermon on that passage sometime and untangle all those phrases and all those covenants they talk about. But the point is, he does talk here about the everlasting covenant, which is, of course, the new covenant. And the effect of that 
is that the people of God, though they are no longer liable to go to hell because of the blessings of the new covenant, they certainly recognize that they belong there. And they certainly recognize that they deserve to be there because of their sins. And as a result, they go softly before the Lord. Because when, when, when God saves you, he puts in you a horror and a hatred uh, and a hostility towards sin. And when you do commit sin as a Christian, you're not proud of it. And you're certainly not cocky about it. And you're certainly not flippant. And you certainly don't treat it lightly. Um, when you get saved, you don't glory in all those horrid things you did in your past. Like, yeah, I remember back in the old days before I was a Christian, we went out and partied and, and boy, we had such a great time, la, la, la. You know, people talk like that who don't know the Lord. People who know the Lord say, you know, I'm, I'm terribly ashamed of my past, who I was, what I did, how I behaved. So thankful God saved me from that. That was a wretched life. And so it's the same way with our sins now. Even though we commit sins now, um, we've committed sins this week. Um, what's our attitude towards those? We're ashamed of them. We're sorry we did them. We wish we hadn't. We certainly don't uh, act uh, indifferent towards them. Those are the sins that nailed our Savior to the cross, that drew the blood out of his body and resulted in his anguish. And when we see what our sins cost our Savior, um, we're ashamed of them. And so Christians, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, when you rightly understand the nature of the new covenant, it will cause people to be careless about sin. In fact, when you understand the nature of the New Testament, new, new covenant, it causes you to even be more careful about not committing sin. Okay. So that's the point of this third blessing of the new covenant is that it humbles people and makes them abhor sin. It doesn't make them cocky in sin and complacent in sin. And, and, and motivated to commit willful sin. All right. Well, thus far for our review, okay? The fourth blessing of the new covenant is regeneration. Now, you're in Ezekiel. Turn to chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36, and uh, we'll look at verses 25 and 26. Now, you'll notice I used a slightly different verse for our memory verse, but our memory verse is this verse, okay? It's taken out of chapter 11, and I'll talk to you in a moment about why I use that one and not this one, uh, but nevertheless, let's look at this one. Ezekiel 36, 25. God says, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart will I give also, a new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Now you remember our verse on the new covenant, God said he will put his laws into our mind and write them upon our hearts. That's what this is talking about, okay? He's going to take out our hardened heart, and he's going to give us a new heart that has the laws of God written on it. Okay? Now notice what he says in verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. 
So there's two great blessings spoken of here. In verse 26, the new heart. And in verse 27, the new spirit. Okay, so the new heart is regeneration. When you're born again, okay, your old nature is taken out and you're given a new nature. You're not both an old man and a new man at the same time. Okay, you don't have two natures. You have a new nature. The old nature was taken out and destroyed. And, of course, you still have the flesh. And the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these two are contrary. So you do have this struggle within you, but it's not a struggle between two natures. It's a struggle between the new nature and the flesh. Okay? And the flesh, of course, is our unredeemed bodies. All right? So, um, what he does is he gives us a new heart. Okay? And then, of course, the new information that's given here is in verse 27. Okay, where he says, I will put my spirit within you. Now, what's the result of the indwelling spirit of God in our lives when we get saved? What's the result of that? Well, he says the result of it is I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Now, the point of this passage is simply this, is that when people become saved and are inaugurated into participation in the new covenant and the new covenant community, that's not just a geographical movement from point A to point B. It's an inward transformation that takes place. And the inward transformation is so radical. When you have the new heart and you have the new spirit, guess what else you have? New behavior. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things pass away and all things become new. And that includes his behavior. So that's why all Christians, without exception, walk with God. That's why all Christians, without exception, keep the law of God. Now, do they keep it perfectly? No. But as the dominating characteristic of their life, they keep the law of God. Whereas before they were saved, the dominating characteristic of their life is they didn't. Okay? So the promise of the effect of the new heart and the new spirit is that we will walk in his statutes, we will keep his judgments, we will do them, and he will cause it to happen in us. And how does he cause it to happen in us? New heart, new spirit. That's how. So, you see someone who claims to be a Christian and they don't walk in his statutes, they don't do his judgments, what can you say about them? You're not a Christian. Now, as we said, you know, if someone says, I have no sin, he's a liar, and the truth is not in him, right? So we're not saying that when we have the new heart and the new spirit, we become sinless, but we are saying that the dominating characteristic of our behavior changes from one of breaking God's law as the dominating characteristic of our life to keeping God's law as the dominating characteristic of our life. Now, one of the problems that Christians have with the assurance of salvation is that they um, have a besetting sin that they struggle with. And that sin is so large and so front and center and it's such a big deal to them that they feel like, that's my life. How can I be a Christian? And the reason why it's such a big deal to them is because that's the thing that really bothers their conscience, right? 
And all these other obediences that they do, they hardly take into account because those things are not bothering them. Have you ever had a sliver in your, in your finger? Right? Have you ever had that? Where's your whole focus? That hurts. The whole rest of your body's perfectly healthy, but where's your focus of your attention? It's on that. And you feel like, you know, I'm, I'm really in trouble. <laughs> I'm, I'm in bad shape here. And your whole focus, and that's kind of the way it is with your besetting sin. I don't want to minimize that. It's like I don't want to minimize a sliver. It is a big deal. Or let's say your finger's even broken. But the whole rest of you, I mean, your liver's working great, right? Okay? So here you have this sin and you're struggling with it and you feel like, how can I be a Christian? I have this. And, and what you don't take into account is, is the spiritual health you have in so many areas of your life and the way you do obey God in 95% of what you do. But this one thing is really a problem for you. So what you have to do is, is get perspective on who you are and what you are and what you are in the, in the totality of your life and realize that you kind of tend to take for granted all those things you do that really are in obedience to God. And you tend to focus on the, the one thing that, that you really struggle with. Don't let that rob you of the assurance of your salvation. Put it in the perspective of the totality of your life. It's kind of like David. When we think of David, what do we think of? You know, Bathsheba, right? And, and Uriah, her husband, murder, adultery. Now, that was bad. I don't want to minimize that. But look at the totality of David's life. You know, that was, if you will, and I'm not minimizing it, the sliver in his finger, okay, that really stood out. But look at all the obediences that he engaged in. And he had other problems, too. That wasn't the only sin he committed, right? But who was David? Who was he? Who did God say he was? A man after my own heart. So, what will God do? He will regenerate us. He will transform us. And that transformation will be seen in our behavior. And that's why when people become born again, they become different people in terms of their behavior and their associations. All right. The next blessing, well, and of course, Jeremiah 31, 33, it says, um, uh, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, right? And I will be to them a God and they will be to me people. So the writing of God's laws in our minds and our hearts are the regeneration that are being spoken of here uh, when he says, um, in verse 26, a new heart will I give you. Okay. So it gives us a new heart. It gives us a new spirit. Result, new behavior. So that's the fourth blessing of the new covenant. Not only is God going to be at peace with his people. Not only is God going to forgive their sins. Not only will they possess humility and contrition for their sins. But they will be regenerated. Okay. Now, this leads us then, of course, to the to the um, the. the fifth gift, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit. I've already spoken of it some in relationship to the new heart and the new spirit. But in particular, uh, in Ezekiel 36, 27, it says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments. Now, I want you to notice our memory verse today. Okay. He says, I will give you one heart and I will put a new spirit within you. 
and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of the flesh. See, there's, it's reversed there. First you have the indwelling spirit, then you have the regeneration of the nature. The, the, the heart of stone is removed, we're given the heart of flesh. What's the result? That they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances. So a new spirit, a new heart, okay? The indwelling spirit, the regenerate nature, results in walking in my statutes and keeping my ordinances and doing them. And what's the consequence? And they shall be my people and I will be their God, okay? And that's the part, they will be my people and I will be their God that is not in Ezekiel 36, 25, and 26. And so I wanted to stick that in there as your memory verse to help you tie this whole concept of indwelling spirit, regenerate nature as being a, uh, a part of the new covenant, of the blessings of the new covenant. Okay? So um, let's look at Isaiah 59. Isaiah chapter 59, verses 20 and 21. It says in Isaiah 59, verse 20, And the Redeemer shall come to Zion. Who's that? Well, that's Jesus, right? And unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. And that's one of the reasons why John the Baptist showed up. He said, repent, turn from your transgressions. The kingdom of God is at hand. Messiah is coming. Verse 21, As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord, my spirit that is upon thee, speaking of the Redeemer, <clears throat> and my words that I put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and forever. And so God is going to put His Spirit upon us, and the result is, is that His words will not depart out of our mouth. Now, have you ever noticed that real Christians can't not talk about the Lord? It just oozes out of them because it's what's in them. You know, you don't have to hang around a person very long before what's inside comes out, right? Because what? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? And so when you have the Spirit of God in you and the Word of God in you, Because who gave us our Bibles? The Spirit, right? Okay. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And so holy men of God uh, spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And so the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired the written Word of God. And if He inspired the written Word of God, do you suppose He's going to provoke us to say something about the Word of God if He's dwelling in us? He certainly is. And so the gift of the Holy Spirit is not only going to cause us to obey the statutes and the judgments of God, uh, it's also going to cause us to speak out the Word of God as we go through life. And uh, one of the greatest compliments I ever got from an unsaved person was, you're always having to talk about the things of the Bible, aren't you? And... uh, you always have to relate everything to the Bible. That's what he said. You always have to relate everything to the Bible. And uh, I thought, thank you, Lord. I'm sure glad that somebody thinks that's what I do because that's sure what I want to do. Um, and so there's no circumstance in life that the Word of God doesn't have something to say about, right? So you, you know, and it's not that you're being a show-off or anything else. It's just 
you see X and you think, what does the Bible say about X? And it just, it comes out of your mouth, right? And it's just who you are. And that's why it says in Colossians chapter four, let your speech be always with grace seasoned with salt. Now, if you ever eat a hamburger, what's the proportion between salt and hamburger? Well, probably about a thousand to one, right? Or whatever. Not very much salt, a lot of hamburger. And in the same way, you know, we talk about a lot of things in life and that's fine, but sprinkled on and throughout what we say are the things of God. And it's not that we got to talk about the things of God every time we open our mouth, but it is to say, as we talk about life and how life happens and all the things that occur, you know, a praise the Lord or thank the Lord comes out or, you know, um, a scripture passage that relates to it or whatever, or, you know, a word of praise. Okay, well, we're going to stop there. And uh, next time we'll talk about the personal communion with God that we enjoy. And then the righteousness we have, the holiness and obedience of life we practice, and then the preservation and perseverance that God works in our lives. All right, um, let's pray together. <clears throat> our Father, we are so grateful for the blessings of the new covenant. Father, to be made by you into the people that we need to be, uh, that we originally intended to be, is such a blessing. Father, when we depart from your ways and your statutes, uh, we are miserable creatures. We look at the world around us, people being hateful and hating one another, filled with malice and envy. Uh, Father, what a wretched life. And we are so thankful that you have brought a Savior, a Redeemer, and a covenant that rescues us and saves us and restores us back to that image from which we fell and that behavior that alone is the path of blessing for our lives. Lord, thank you for um, the new covenant. May all the blessings that are conveyed in it be greatly strengthened in our lives today. Father, may we just blossom as new covenant Christians. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.